Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Job chapter 42. Uh, We're getting to the end of our study in Job. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. And Job uh, chapter 42 this morning, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9. And the main uh, thing we'll be looking at this morning is on repentance. Because God has just finished speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. And the terrifying circumstances of the storm, which kind of like what was at Mount Sinai, if you can remember that event, and just just the in the midst of the storm and all that was going on in Mount Sinai, the earthquake and and uh, just the thunder, and something similar with Job, it's this uh, huge. Uh, circumstances help uh, that uh, would have certainly created these uh, circumstances to get Job's attention. Uh, and then following the, the physical elements of the storm, uh, God started pelting Job with this relentless uh, volley of questions. Should I use that? Thank you. So this relentless interrogation by God, which overwhelmed Job with basically two truths. The first one is that God is sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, and infinitely wise and just. That God has the right to rule over His creation and all the animals and all the creatures that He has made. That's the first truth that just comes across in God's speeches to Job. The second effect is that all of these questions, which Job could answer none of them from God, brought such a humbling effect upon his heart because it reminded him of his own impotence, his own insignificance, and the utter folly of thinking that he as a finite creature could challenge the justice of Almighty God concerning the reasons for his suffering. All of this shattered... It It did shatter my eardrums, I think. (laughs) So all of this uh, basically shattered his proud heart. So Job had been complaining against God. He had been grumbling against God because he felt like it was unjust, that he was suffering. But God's speech and God's presence and God's Word to Job just shattered his his heart, removed the pride. And really, there's there's a truth here. Until God reveals His majesty to His people, we do not see our sin, nor will we confess it. We have to have a sense of the greatness, the holiness, the majesty of God for there to be true repentance. But Job has just experienced that. And so what we find now in uh, Job chapter 42, uh, his repentance is laid out. Let me just read this for you. 
Job chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's actually Job is repeating what God had said to him. Who is this that hides knowledge, that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job responds to that. Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So this is the great final concluding expression of repentance on Job's part, which brings about his reconciliation uh, with God. Repentance is one of the essential building blocks of our sanctification. It's the means by which we enter into life. You've got to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your sins. So it's, it's vital for our salvation, but it's also a vital part of our growth in grace because though we are forgiven from the guilt of all of our sins, we still wrestle with the contamination of it. Martin Luther correctly noted in his first of 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, when he said, number one, the first of those 95 He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And there He's contrasting, He's saying it's not the sacrament of penance, but it's speaking to that the whole life of the believer should be one of, of repenting before God. Jesus emphasized the same thing when He gave us His model prayer where we are to persistently and habitually include in our prayers, Lord, forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So this idea of repenting and confessing of sin should be a daily part of our Christian lives. So what I want us to do is to look at Job's repentance, and particularly verse 6 and then uh, the following passage, And just uh, look at this as a study on repentance because it is so important to us. Now, if you look at verse 6, the New American Standard translates it, therefore I retract. Most other translations have something like, I despise myself or I abhor myself. And what's interesting in those translations is that the reflexive pronoun myself is not in the Hebrew text. So you could translate it literally, I reject, I despise, I refuse, I abhor, I retract. But it's probably correct that Job has himself in focus. So I think those other translations are are accurate in getting the sense. So the idea would be, 
Job begins in verse 6 by saying, therefore, based on what I've just seen from God, based upon what I've just heard from God, now that I understand my sin and the folly of my words, I now reject myself. In other words, I reject my words. I reject my pride. I despise myself. I abhor myself, my sin, the the foolishness that I thought that I could actually uh, bring a complaint before God and accuse Him of being unjust. I reject, I denounce all of that. So that's the first idea that is uh, being communicated by Job in his uh, repentance. The idea is basically that uh, now that Job has has had his mind and heart illumined by God's questions and God's character, he realizes just uh, that the only response that he could make is to confess his sin and to reject it, to reject his attitude. That it was rebellious, that it was accusatory, that it was judgmental, and he had no right to display that attitude towards God. He now agrees with God against himself. And that's an important part of repentance. We agree with God, and yet we see ourselves to be at blame. So Job now sees the sanctifying effect of his afflictions. In part, they have exposed his proud and grumbling spirit against God. And he is effectively, uh, God has effectively chopped to the ground his pride. And that is going to bring about more spiritual growth in his humility as he now comes with a humble heart before God. No longer is Job asserting his rights. No longer is he asserting his innocence. No longer is he accusing God of mistreating him. He is denouncing himself in his own sin. So that's the first word, retract, or your translation may have a different one. And then the second part, he says, and I repent in dust and ashes. And with this word, repent, the word really expresses more of an idea of experiencing some level of sorrow because of his sin. Uh, Job has been guilty of false accusations against God. Now he realizes it. He's accused God falsely. And now that sin has so been revealed to his heart that he experiences a level of sorrow and grief. He now regrets his rash and foolish and hasty words. So the word repent, this Hebrew word, carries more of a response that can be both emotional. There's a level of sorrow and grief uh, based on his sin, but also a, a strong resolve to change directions. Job is surrendering to God the last vestige of his own self-righteousness. That stinkweed of our nature that always wants to defend ourselves. He is finally giving that up. And he says, I repent in dust and ashes. Now back in that day, when they repented, uh, they a lot of times would literally throw dust and ashes on their head. 
Uh, that was just kind of the cultural way that they expressed repentance back then. Sometimes they would tear clothes. Uh, but here he mentions throwing dust and ashes on his head. And uh, this is no doubt an, an outward expression used in that culture of self-humility and self-degradation. And there may be the idea that because God told Adam after he sinned that you were made from dust and to dust you shall return, that when they throw dust on their head, it's kind of like the idea that I deserve death. I deserve to be buried in the dust because of my sin. And so it was an outward just uh, a way to, to visually and physically communicate the, the sorrow of his own inner grief and shame because of his sin. So when you look at these two words uh, and try to summarize some of the aspects of godly repentance, uh, there are several things that we can observe. Just as I've mentioned with the word repent, uh, true repentance, godly repentance, will have some sense of sorrow for our sin. In other words, when you get convicted of sin, it's not just an intellectual acknowledgement, okay, I did wrong. It's, it's really a, a heart issue. Repentance really must begin in the heart. Uh, the heart must be afflicted to some degree, again, with the, with the shame and the evil of the sin that we've just committed. Now again, the motions can, can vary, but a mere confession of sin with our lips is not enough for true repentance. Remember Isaiah had to rebuke the nation of Israel in Isaiah 29 verse 13 when the Lord said to them, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In other words, if we just come to God and just kind of mechanically confess our sin, that's really not what true repentance is about. Joel chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet told Israel to rend your heart, not your garments. Someone can go out and just kind of tear their garments as an outward show, look how sad I am for my sin. But you can even do that in a way that's just perfunctory, just as a way of, of outward show. And what the prophet is saying, no, tear your heart. You have sinned against God. Tear your heart. Feel that, that sorrow, that grief, because we have sinned against a holy God. So one of the things we learn about true repentance is that it should have an element of a feeling the sorrow, the remorse, the shame, the self-condemnation because of our sin. And, and it's very easy to, to be so light and airy in our confession of sin that we can just kind of read the words or say the words, but we really don't feel the weight of the burden of our sin. So true repentance to some degree will experience the humility and some sense of sorrow for our sin that we've sinned and broken God's law. The second main point here is that true repentance is always directed to God. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 42, Job answered the Lord. So this is what he was saying to the Lord. 
So it must be God-centered repentance, not man-centered or thing-centered. It's true repentance is always focused towards God. God, I have broken your law. I have sinned against you. Now, we may very well in that act of sin have sinned against other people. But first and foremost, we have broken God's word. And that's why David in Psalm 51 verse 4, though he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah, could say something quite phenomenal when he said against you, speaking to God, and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now David is not saying I haven't sinned against Bathsheba and I haven't sinned against Uriah. But he's saying when you compare my sin against them, my sin first and foremost is a sin against you God because I have broken your commandments. So repentance must be directed to God. A false repentance is a sorrow. Yeah, we can have a sorrow that is not directed towards God, but it's directed towards the things that I've lost. Or it's directed towards the problems that I'm dealing with now because of my sin. In other words, it's it's a repentance, but it's aimed at, boy, I'm sad because now I've lost this, or now because this circumstance has come into my life. And that's not a God-centered repentance. That's a thing-centered repentance. And of course, a classic sad example of that is Esau in Hebrews chapter 12. The author says, Let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance even though he sought for it with tears. So Esau wept. Why was he weeping? Because he had sinned against Almighty God? No, because he lost his inheritance. His sorrow was aimed at what he had lost in terms of the temporal inheritance that he hoped to gain. It wasn't because he had sinned first and foremost against God. It's look at how miserable my life is now because I don't have the, the wealth and the inheritance that I should have. And look at this and the circumstances of that. And, and yeah, he was sor- sorrowful. He was grieved. But it wasn't first and foremost to bow humbly before a sovereign, holy God and, and in light of the fact that we've broken His commandments. So it was a false repentance. Wasn't really even any kind of repentance at all. He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. A lot of sorrow, but it wasn't a God-directed sorrow. So true repentance must have that element of not only having some level of feeling the, the shame of our sin, the remorse for our sin, but it also must be directed uh, towards God. The third aspect of true godly repentance is that it should result in our change. Repentance produces or comes out of a heart that desires to comply with God's laws. So a change in the inward attitude from rebellion against God to submission before God. So true repentance is going to therefore be worked out of life. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that you will know them by their fruits. So the outward fruit of repentance should be there. Uh, John the Baptist also told the Pharisees that were coming to be baptized, he says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. True repentance will produce fruit. The fruit is not repentance in and of itself. It's the, it's the fruit of repentance. The repentance is a change of heart attitude towards our sin, towards God. But that will result in a change, an outward change, in some form or fashion. So true repentance is something that should effect some kind of an outward change. Now with Job, his repentance did affect an outward change because he stopped complaining and griping and moaning and accusing God of being unjust and mistreating him. He stopped that. So his, uh, his repentance did bear fruit. Uh, we don't see that anymore in, in the book of Job, that attitude that he had previously. Um, but there is a question, I do want to be careful in saying this, that uh, true repentance should bring about an outward change. But how much change? And can we experience true repentance and then fall back into that sin that we just repented of? It's an important question to at least address. What if I've repented, but I still struggle with that sin? Did I really repent? Does repentance mean it's one and done? You, you repent one time and then you're done. That sin is, if you've truly repented, then that'll never come up again. Uh, I would say, however, looking at the Scriptures that due to the weakness of our flesh as believers, sometimes we can continue to struggle with sin. Just take the issue of pride or impatience or anger. How many times have we repented of those things? And is it, But is it one and done? Never have a problem with pride again for the rest of your life? Never have a problem with anger or impatience or lustful thoughts? No, sometimes it comes back. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that true godly repentance sometimes may not be long-lasting or permanent in that regard. I think we can genuinely repent and feel the remorse and cry out to God and bring it before God. And we can see outward change, change in our behavior, but it may not be permanent. It may not last for the rest of our life, for example. That's why I think Jesus tells us that we need to like, as a permanent part of our prayer life, to be confessing our sin. Because sometimes sin has those roots, those besetting sins in Hebrews 12 that sometimes we can wrestle with. The outward change may not last because of the intense battle in our soul. Because of the weakness of our flesh. Because maybe we haven't been diligently pursuing the other means of grace. But it's something that I think that that can happen. And some believers I know can be very, very discouraged by the fact that sometimes they're wrestling with sin and it's just something that they just, they're wrestling with. 
True, true repentance will, will have the desire, though, to, to kill sin. True repentance wants to cast it off, that sin. It wants to be rid of it forever. But because the flesh is powerful, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can mortify the flesh, sometimes genuine repentance can be sincere, but short-lived. I don't say this to encourage anyone to give in to their battle with sin, of course. But I want to encourage those who are wrestling with sin to continue to fight it. As Paul says in Romans 8.13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So keep fighting it. Look, look to the power of the Spirit of God to help you cry out more for His help. But continue to fight it. But that's something that we will have to do is to continue to fight against sin. John Calvin made some insightful comments when he said, all believers must give attention to repenting and being displeased with themselves all of their lives for we never spend a day without a lot of transgressions. If we examine ourselves very closely, we will always find something to rebuke in ourselves. In other words, we're going to fight sin till the day we die. But it's got to be a, a war that we engage in. And you may not win it all the time or every day, but you keep fighting it by the power of the Lord. I think it was uh, Billy Sunday, uh, not necessarily one of my favorite preachers, but he used to say something about fighting sin, that he'll, he'll fight sin every day of his life. He'll, he'll hit it with his fist. He'll kick it with his foot. He'll, he'll bite it with his teeth. And he'll keep doing it till he gets so old that he, he can't kick it anymore and he can't hit it anymore. But he says, even then, I'll, I'll still gum it to death till the day I die. And it's just that persistence. We're going to be fighting against sin. And we need to fight. We need to keep repenting. We need to keep crying out to God uh, for His grace to help us to be rid of it. And the power is in the Spirit. And that's an encouragement. If we're doing it in the flesh, then we'll always fail. But the Spirit of God is there to help us. So, because of... Job's godly repentance, he was fully restored in his relationship with God. And this restoration deals with Job's sanctification, not his justification. In other words, I think Job was a believer. I mean, you get that sense from chapter 1 on. He was a godly man. He was a God-fearing man. He, he uh, walked with the Lord. He was pleasing to the Lord. He was, had a blameless life. He, he was a believer. So when he fell into sin under the ongoing weight of all these sufferings that Satan brought upon him by God's plan, that he began to grumble against God, his pride began to surface, the snake came out of the sticks, if you will. And that sin began to become evident, and so he needed to repent of it. So God revealed Himself, He repented. But His repentance restored His relationship with the Lord as a believer. So this is not his justification, repentance, and restoration. I just want to make that point. 
And the point is that even because some people may get confused, why, why do we have to still confess our sins? I've talked to believers sometimes who say, why do I still need to confess my sins? I'm already forgiven. I, I, I was forgiven back when I trusted Christ, back when so many years ago. So I'm forgiven. Why, why do we still need to confess our sin? Well, the reason is when, we, when we're justified, justification removes the penalty of sin, the punishment for sin. But the pollution of sin continues on in the life of the believer. And so we need to confess our sins to remove the pollution. We've already been saved. The condemnation has been gone. The guilt has been gone. The punishment has been gone. But the pollution, the stain, the stench can still interfere with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Psalms say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So that's why the believer still needs to regularly, habitually confess our sin because it, it, will, it will interfere in, with our fellowship with, with God. When we first come to faith, I mean, justification, the forgiveness is glorious. Uh, here's just some Old Testament verses that describe the, uh, the forgiveness that we have when we're justified, when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Scriptures say that though our sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. That God casts all of our sins behind His back. That God wipes out our sins and remembers them no more. That He removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That He's tread our iniquities under His feet and cast them into the depths of the sea. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a complete and total healing of our sin. But it doesn't mean that now we're sinless. We still have the flesh. We still struggle with sin. That's why we still need to confess sin and repent of our sin. The guilt has been taken away. The punishment, the curse, the condemnation, all that's already been dealt with. But the stain and the pollution of our sin remains. That's why for the believer... All punishment for sin is gone, but the pollution still remains. And that's why we need to continue to be confessing our sin to receive cleansing from that pollution. That's why 1 John 1.9 says He'll not only forgive you, but cleanse you to deal with that pollution. I'm sure everyone's uh, been following the tragedy in East Palestine where the train wreck occurred and then all these uh, extremely dangerous chemicals had to be burned up. They made a decision to burn them up and then this big cloud of smoke and toxins just settled over the land, killing fish by the hundreds. People went out the next morning. All their chickens were dead. Uh, their animals were sick. Their little children were just throwing up in the middle of the night. People were getting rashes, getting sick, and all of that pollution. So now the whole deal is, how are they going to clean that up? But you see the importance of that kind of cleanup. I mean, this because that pollution, those toxins are very destructive. And sin is like that in our soul. It's like that in our, in our hearts. It is toxic. 
It's a pollution that will contaminate us and bring great damage and harm to us. It needs to be cleaned up. They need to go in there and clean all that stuff out. And what God has given to us in His mercy and grace to do that as a believer is repentance. Where we acknowledge that we have sinned first and foremost against God. We, we have a certain amount of sorrow over the shame and the, and, and the, and the vileness of our sin. And we confess it to, to the Lord and then by His grace we seek to change and, and lay that sin aside. But this is the great blessing that we have. So that we have in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. So He's going to forgive us of all those sins. And, but He's going to cleanse us as well. He's going to remove the pollution. And that's what we need. And so we're incredibly blessed to have that uh, gift of repentance given to us in our sanctification to restore our relationship with God that sin has come in and, and clouded over so that we don't have the, the walk with God that we should. So that's Job's repentance. And now starting quickly in verse 7, we now turn to Job's three friends. Because they need to repent also. Although their repentance is going to take on a bit of a different character because I think they're basically unbelievers. Uh, all four of them, Job and his three friends, do have certain similar understandings about the character of God. They all hold to retributive justice that, that uh, God deals with us according to our merit, according to our works. And the whole book is to show that that's a lie, that that's uh, inaccurate. But now we turn to them. So in verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, he was, kind of the, he was kind of the leader of the mob, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So, what we find, first off, and I'll just make a, a comment about this, is that notice how God deals with Job first. And then He deals with His friends. And this is kind of the principle that we see in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So in other words, God's first and foremost interest is in working with His, His people. So He deals with Job first. And I think the, the lesson for us is sometimes we can look around, we can think, you know, the church seems uh, in many places to be suffering in many ways, 
But the world seems to be doing just fine. The world seems to be prospering. The ungodly seem to be in places of power. They seem to be in control. We're passing all these laws that are ungodly and taking away our freedoms. And it seems like the church uh, in America at times and certainly in other countries is really suffering tremendously. Why, why does God allow that? Well, God's primary work in dealing with this world is to prepare a bride for His Son. And that bride needs to be adorned with righteousness and godliness. And so God is, is first and foremost working with His church, working with His people, dealing with our sin, helping us to grow in sanctification. That's His, that's his primary uh, job. And, and, and the reason for that is because we are the apple of His eye. Our names are written upon His palms. We're the sheep of His pasture. Or his chosen race, his holy nation, his royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. So that's why sometimes the church may look like it's under affliction and under trials and under all of these sanctifying influences because God is primarily preparing a bride for his son. The world may not appear to be getting a lot of judgment right now. Maybe they all seem to be happy and prosperous and healthy, but their day is coming. And a day is coming when they will stand before God and give an account. So it's just kind of interesting the order that God deals with Job first, but now He turns to His, I would think, unbelieving friends. And notice what He says to him again in verse 7. He says, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So God says to them, my wrath is kindled against you. Whenever God speaks of His wrath being kindled against someone, <clears throat> think of the judgments of Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah's flood, plagues of Egypt. That's God's wrath being kindled. And God is telling Eliphaz, my wrath is upon you three. Now, why is God's wrath upon them? Well, because they've not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So the main thing God is calling them to the carpet on is their bad theology. What they were saying about God that was false. Now, this is the logic of uh, basically the three friends. And you can write it down in a syllogism, a, lo a logic syllogism. And it goes like this. Premise number one, all great suffering is the punishment for great sinners. Premise two, Job is a great sufferer. Therefore, conclusion, Job is a great sinner. Now the three friends, of course, they held to that view that God only deals with us according to our merit. So that the righteous people are always blessed and the evil people are always judged. They have trials and problems and afflictions. So God doesn't deal with people in any other way other than based upon what they deserve. Now, now this is a, an element we find in Scripture 
that is certainly true that sometimes God deals with us according to our merits. But they were saying that's that's all that God does, basically. We know that um, a man will reap what he sows. So that's that's speaking to the fact that, yeah, our, our lifestyle has consequences. But the problem was with these guys is that first premise that all great suffering is the punishment for great sinners. And Job knew that to be false. And it was false. The first premise is false. God can bring great suffering upon the godly for reasons other than their sin. Job is a classic example. It wasn't because of his sin. It was to prove his faith to Satan. That's why all these sufferings came upon him. But the bad theology was, no, it's what you merit. God deals with us according to our merit. And that was the great lie. That was the great sin. And on this point, Job won the debate with his friends. He didn't understand why he was suffering, but he knew that God was not punishing him because of his great sin. He continued to argue his innocence before God. So that whole theology of retributive justice is now being dismantled and disintegrated in the book of Job. And that was the lie of these three friends. They have not spoken of God what is right as my servant Job has. And then the Lord goes on in the next verse and refers to these words as being utter foolishness. That is, disgraceful words, sinful words, rebellious words, opposite of wise and wisdom. Their words accusing God that He only deals with men based upon their merit. What about God's grace? What about His mercy? What about His long-suffering? They had no concept of that. It was all based upon merit, merit, merit. And so that's why they were, they were in the wrong. Job, on the other hand, is uh, fully vindicated. Even though he, he began to develop this pride and, and develop a, another sin that he had to repent of later on, in the context of the debate between him and his friends, he had the upper hand. He was speaking truth about God. Because he was, he was understanding that, yeah, the suffering came from God, but it wasn't because of my great sin. And in that, he was absolutely correct. We, we see that, that Job is being vindicated here in verse 7 and in verse 8. Because four times in verse 7 and 8, God now refers to Job as my servant Job. Now this is all this is the way God referred to Job back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when he's talking to Satan. He refers to Job as my servant Job. Now at the end of the book, four times, there's the first one in verse 7 and then verse 8, now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Four times. And this speaks of the fact that now Job is being restored in his relationship with God. God now views upon him as my servant again. Instead of this rebellious child that needs to be rebuked, now it's my servant Job. 
And so you just know the relationship has been mended and healed and he's been reinstated to, to that high status that he had before the trial of being God's servant. So God then turns to the friends and he says, basically what you need to do is you need to take seven bulls and seven rams and you need to take them to my servant Job and offer them up as a burnt offering. The burnt offering, this is going to be a sin offering. It's a burnt offering. So you take seven bulls and seven rams. That was a very uh, costly offering for these men. Well, they could afford it. They're, they're probably wealthy men of noble rank. So they bring a, a, a big sacrifice, these seven bulls and seven rams. But they take it to Job as a burnt offering. And the sin offering is to make an atonement for their sin. What's interesting is they take it to Job. And Job begins to function somewhat like a, their priest. Now there's no official priesthood at this point. But now they bring it to Job. And they're going to sacrifice him there in the presence of Job. And then notice what he says in verse 8. And my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you've not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So now, for them to receive pardon, they have to bring an animal sacrifice, but Job needs to pray for them. Job needs to pray for them. And Job is qualified to do that because he's been forgiven. And notice what God says, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you as you deserve. So you need to bring an animal sacrifice. Job needs to pray for you so that I don't pour out my wrath which you deserve. Now what's so interesting here is that God is teaching these three guys that their theology is wrong, that there is something of mercy and grace and forgiveness from God. So he's saying, you bring these animal sacrifices and Job will pray for you so that I won't pour out my wrath upon you as you deserve. In other words, God's going to show them mercy. He's going to expand their understanding of the character of God. That God doesn't always deal with us according to our merits. Sometimes He deals with us according to His grace and mercy. But what's so interesting in this is that I think Job becomes... A beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. We we see the picture of Christ or types of Christ in the animal sacrifices to provide an atonement. Throughout the Old Testament, when God required those animal sacrifices, it was always pointing forward to the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The animal blood cannot really take away our sin. So, but they pointed forward to the glory of Christ. So we see that kind of embedded in here that they need to bring an animal sacrifice understanding that this animal cannot take away your sin, but it points forward to one who could, the Lord Jesus. So we see Christ typified in the animal sacrifice, but, but even more so in, in how Job now is relating to his friends. Because the first thing Job portrays to them is the office of a 
like a priest. They bring the sacrifices to Job. Job is standing there, kind of intervening for them, kind of as their priest. And of course, we know that uh, as a priest, all the Old Testament priests pointed forward to the final great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. So that Aaron and all the other priests we find in the Old Testament were all inferior. They, they were sinners themselves. They had to bring their own animal sacrifices. But they pointed forward to the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And that's Jesus Christ. And then interestingly enough, God tells them that Job will pray for them. So they not only need to bring a sacrifice, they need for this priest, if you will, to be their mediator, to pray for them so that they might be forgiven. And here again, we see Job as an Old Testament picture, a prefigurement of the role of Jesus Christ as our mediator who prays for us. Not only is Job a picture of Christ as a priest, he's also a picture of Christ as our mediator. And if you look back again at verse 8, he says, For I will accept him that I may not do with you according to your folly. You know, the great thing that we have in Jesus Christ as our mediator we have someone who, like Job, continues to pray for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says of Christ that He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. See, before the friends could be saved, they needed a blood atonement. They also needed the prayers of a mediator. And we have them both in Jesus Christ. They all point forward to the Lord Jesus. And Job's friends could be forgiven and accepted because of Job's ministry to them. That's why he's such a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Now those three friends can stand before God and be accepted because Job was accepted on their behalf. Job was a mediator for his friends. His prayers for them were accepted before God, which enabled them to be accepted before God. And what a beautiful picture again of Christ. Because you and I this morning, as believers in Jesus Christ, we stand accepted before God because we have a great high priest who offered Himself as an atonement for our sins, but who continues to pray for us as our mediator, praying for us at all times, so that now we can be accepted before God because our high priest and mediator is acceptable to God. We're not acceptable in and of ourselves, but our great high priest, our great mediator, He is the one who is also our Lamb of God who shed His blood for our sins. We are accepted in Him. And you see that faintly carried out in Job's ministry to his three friends. Well, true repentance connects us to so many wonderful blessings that flow from Christ. 
Repentance is for both unbelievers and also for the saints. Again, I remind you that for unbelievers, it's necessary for salvation for you to repent and place your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone to save you. You cannot do anything to earn your salvation. You cannot merit the righteousness that you think will make you acceptable before God. Because all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before Him. It's only Christ's imputed righteousness that makes us acceptable before God. And we receive that as a gift when we repent and believe in Jesus alone as our Lord and Savior. But repentance is also for believers. And the encouragement is to sinful saints, which we all are, is to let our hearts rejoice that we have Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, and the perfect mediator who has functioned on our behalf and ministered on our behalf that we might be accepted before God. And as we still struggle with sin, as we still find ourselves living in disobedience sometimes to God, let us turn from that. Let us repent of it. Let us grieve that we have broken God's law. And let us turn to God and confess our sin and receive the cleansing and the forgiveness and and glory in the grace that we are still accepted before God because of what our, our Lord has done for us. He's a perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, and the perfect mediator And because He is accepted to the Father, we who by faith are placed in Him are accepted as well. And that is a great blessing for God's people, particularly when we can get so discouraged by our sin and our failure and our weakness. We need to continue to repent, but let us keep our eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, Because our acceptance with God is not based upon us. It's based upon Christ. And may that encourage our hearts. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for this uh, teaching from being able to observe Job's repentance and just, Lord, how You brought reconciliation with his friends. And how we see that in Job, Lord, just a a beautiful, preliminary, faint, shadowy picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we thank You, Lord, that You still encourage us as Your children, though we still sin, though we still struggle with many infirmities, that whenever we confess our sins, that You are faithful and just. Faithful and just and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Christ has taken it all away. He has already saved us from the penalty of sin. He's in the process of delivering us from the pollution and power of sin. And one day He will remove from us totally the very presence of all sin. And for that, we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.